Take a network break. Settle in with a virtual donut as we motor through this week's tech news. We've got stories on Microsoft, Cisco, Juniper, and we peer over the horizon at Wi-Fi 7 and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up to watch Palo Alto Networks. SASE Converge 2021. It's an on-demand webinar where you hear from leading voices in networking and security. Get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. You can sign up for that at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. And stick around for a Tech Bytes podcast, also with Palo Alto Networks, where we're talking about how a SASE architecture and a next-generation CASB or cloud access security broker can help security teams manage SaaS risks, all those SaaS applications you're using. Last but not least, if you like Network Break, check out Heavy Strategies, the newest podcast on the network, co-hosted by Greg Farrow and Jonah Till Johnston of Nemertes Research. And Greg, you can tell us about that because that's your show. Yeah, it is. It's a new show. And the idea is, is to actually get two people and then argue two sides of a debate. And so literally take a little bit like high school debating in a sense, if you remember back that far where you'll get given a topic and then you pick a, pick a straw and one person takes one side of the argument and the other person takes the other. And what we're trying to do is discuss the issues, not make up your mind for you. I've got a firm belief that if you're an enterprise IT, everybody's situation is different. And the thing that might be of assistance to you is just hearing different ideas and hearing different ways of looking at a problem. And that might bring you something that helps you in the day-to-day, -day, in the day job. So heavy strategy is mostly around strategic issues. So it's a bit waffy and ideas-y. So I apologize for that if you're much more in the weeds, but the idea is just to sort of look at the strategic implications of things like marketing, operational debt, technical debt versus operational debt, you know, and the motto for the show is the questions are more important than the answers. So if that's something that you want to hear, get into your podcatcher and search for heavy strategy. It's not a part of the packet pushes feed. So if you're in the shared feed, you won't see it. You do have to go and subscribe to it separately. And that's because people were telling us there's too much content in the feed already and the combined feeds already. So we didn't want to overload you with too much stuff. Right. You told us there was too much content. So we went and made another show because that's what we Yeah, did. that's right. But it's separate. If you want it, you have to go and find it rather than jamming it into your web experience, you know, into your experience <laughs> and filling up your attention. Yeah. All right. Speaking of jamming stuff into your experience, let's do some news. Microsoft has announced its intention to buy video game company Activision Blizzard for $68.7 billion in an all cash deal. If it goes through, it would be Microsoft's biggest acquisition ever in terms of price. Yeah, I, I like your take on this in the in, in the notes, Drew. You said this is a metaverse play. How do you see that playing out? Because I agree. Well, that's what I've been reading about from other people analyzing it, that um, we know this whole metaverse issue has popped up ever since Facebook changed its name uh, to Meta, uh, that people are hoping to get uh, folks more in deeply online through virtual reality. And I guess gaming platforms are probably the easiest way maybe to get folks in there. So I guess looking down the road, Microsoft thinks, okay, we've got a lot of gaming, we've got Xbox, we've got other games, uh, then the metaverse is the next frontier for us to conquer. And so having great mm. intellectual property uh, with famous games built around that could be their avenue in. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think for different reasons in that I think the metaverse is this idea of uh, adding, you know, video conferencing in Zoom is sort of that camera on you with a voice and voice is a primary method mm -hmm. and the video is a supplement. And I think there's a technology is going to want to assume that you want more than just a camera on your face. You need to feel many people would need to feel like they're in the room. Lots of people won't. I think a lot of people will find. <laughs> I think 99% of people are going to ignore the metaverse, frankly. Yeah, I, I think so. But I do think there's something there, some way of making like zoom is not enough and WebEx is not enough. And Google meet is certainly not enough. Like Google Meet's just horrible. Um, so I think that if you took a game environment, now this idea of an immersive environment that games with with cracking visuals and right. you know more to it than just looking at my ugly mug, <laughs> then there's something there. And so I do believe that companies that are have a gaming element as well as a communications platform, and Microsoft has Teams, um, as well as the Office strategy. So the tools, it's going to be tools. How do you do spreadsheets in the you know in some sort of in a virtual environment? Do they project up on the screen and you see them? How do you interact with them? I think games companies are going to be well equipped. So I think this there's that angle to it, which is the metaverse. I, I've just got to um, say, if Microsoft's entry into the metaverse is you get to build a virtual office that you can commute to every day in the metaverse, that's just the saddest uh, invocation of the metaverse um, I've ever heard. I don't want to go to a virtual. Well, office I imagine in the, the metaverse. metaverse is going to be very blockchain. You know, like there's something there. There's a nugget of truth in there. There could. But be. the path to getting where it's actually workable and usable and people will pay is not at all clear. Right. 
I mean, frankly, yeah. I, I, Microsoft's angle here, I think, is that if the metaverse actually takes off, it's going to require gobs and gobs and gobs of computing power, storage, networking, and they mm. happen to have a cloud that could be the back end for that. So there's some, I hate to use the word synergy here, between the metaverse and what uh, mm. and Azure, I think, is what Microsoft is thinking. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of synergy with Teams more, right? We've already got corporate environments operating inside of Teams. I think the corporates will be the first to do it. The metaverse, the really? People, yeah. Like I, you want to have an a, immersive interaction where you're wearing a headset to have a meeting? Oh, I don't, but I'm sure that that's, <laughs> there are, there are people who still believe that video conferencing is a thing and they're still putting video conferencing units in classrooms and, and offices, right? Yes, true. And I mean, that's ridiculous. It obviously makes much more sense to put a camera on top of a computer and everybody sits down and talks to that. The idea of, you know, if you think writing on a whiteboard is something sacrosanct and that's the only possible tool, then You've obviously forgotten that it was only 10 years ago we were doing it on, you know, with marker pens on paper, flip mm -hmm. charts, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, you know, doing diagram, you know, taking photos of the diagrams. I mean, the revolution of, that, of flip charts was taking photos with your smartphone. Do you know, like, these things change over time, and I don't think whiteboards have got a particular gift. I think they're being replaced by ubiquitous computing. You can take notes and so forth. So I, I suspect that their corporate environments will want to find ways to engage employees better and to see them and to make sure that they're working better. There's plenty of people who go to work who don't want to go to work, Drew. Of course. Unlike you and I. Unlike right? you and me, we just love to go to work. Oh, God, I can't wait. Wake up every morning filled with the thrill and joy of it all, you know. <laughs> um, so I think people will, there will be a push, but I think it'll be an evolution of the Zoom, Teams, WebEx type environment. And the companies that are behind them need to bring together a wide range of skill sets to make that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the VR part is just a, I don't think that's a key, but I think it's part of the mix. I don't think it's the only thing. You could do a lot of it with just audio. I guess, right? I mean, I guess in terms of thinking about the metaverse, I may be hung up on that virtual reality immersive part of it. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't have to be like, let's recreate the office and all that sort of right. foo for our. I think there's other possibilities there that they can come up with. There could be. Uh, yeah. Whether the people who are thinking about them are thinking about them is. Well, you know, who knows? Yeah. But then again, look at blockchain. It's not like they've really gotten off on the right start. There's something in blockchain, but I don't think we found the killer use case. In the same way when the web first arrived, you know, back in the late 90s, we were using it just for static web pages. Well, that wasn't the killer use. That certainly was a start, but it wasn't where we needed to be. You know, like right. GeoCities wasn't the end point. It was a step along <laughs> the path. Right. It certainly wasn't. If you end. remember back that far. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Blinking green cursors, I remember. Yeah, and MySpace and, you know, MySpace evolved into other things like Facebook and Twitter and, mm -hmm. you know, all those tools, Instagram and so forth. And and now we're looking at an evolution. I yeah. A couple other issues here. Um, this acquisition is potentially troublesome for Microsoft in that Activision Blizzard uh, in terms of how the company operated and behaved internally does not have a great reputation. Um, some significant issues with employee harassment and frat-like behavior that, you know, I, I assume Microsoft does not want to have associated with the company, so it's got some work to do internally in that regard to make this more palatable. Au contraire, Drew. <laughs> oh, okay. It, it turns out that Microsoft taking this on, Activision was in deep trouble. Employees are walking out the door. It's mm -hmm. facing massive lawsuits. It can't hire anybody because the word's out that Activision is a toxic workplace. Mm -hmm. And Microsoft was able to buy this company for probably $20 billion less Oh, because and of that, I see. Because of that, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the from the stuff I've read from the financial analysts. So Microsoft is actually buying Activision at a massive discount, even though it's a hell of a lot of money. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so the Wall Street Journal back in early 2021 published a, an expose that the workplace consistently protected employees accused of misconduct, ignored, ignored or systematically silenced seemingly countless women who've suffered under the company's frat boy culture. So that'll tell you something, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, if you say like Microsoft is buying Activision, that nobody's going to accept the fact that Microsoft will permit that to happen. I think Microsoft's going to come in. Anybody who's above a certain tier of executive, they'll be gone. They'll just be wiped clean. Mm -hmm. And there'll be Microsoft people will go and charge and there's no way. But if you had have said Facebook is buying Activision, people would have been up in arms because Facebook's already verging on a frat boy culture. <laughs> Um, you know, it's it's a very uh, odd place to work, like most Silicon Valley companies, and that would not have gotten off the ground, I think. But Microsoft buying this company 
and saying to people, we can fix this problem. We are going to be able to come in and apply our HR and our executive leadership. That makes sense. And in the return, they got a $20 billion discount. So the, so Microsoft is using its reputation as part of the buyout in a lot of ways. And I expect most of the Activision execs to be pushed out the door. But don't panic. I'm sure they'll get golden parachutes as they leave, aside from all the money they make it out of the uh, um, yeah. There is one other thing I wanted to note is that, you know, we talk a lot about the cloud and there's a lot of the time people have this belief that Microsoft is a, a cloud company. That's its future. It's committing itself. And I would just point out that Microsoft spending roughly $90 billion is more than it's spent on Azure in the last five years, give or take a bit, right? Mm-hmm. And you should think about that. You, that literally Microsoft is a gaming company and a cloud company and a legacy company. And that the Azure business unit is just one part of overall. So when Microsoft stands up and says Azure is our future, that's like Greg saying packet pushes is my future. <laughs> sure, it's a big part, but my future is really about sitting on a beach drinking fancy cocktails and not doing anything. That's really what my future is. But so I just want to point out, and that it struck me. Okay. So just to take that metaphor a little bit further, when you think about it like that, you realize that Google Cloud is an accessory to its ad business. Right. Right. And if you think of AWS, yeah, sure. AWS is a $40 billion, you know, a year organization. It's got good run rates, got massive growth, but it's a fraction of the Amazon business. So it's literally a small business unit of the whole of Amazon. Right. So if the cloud went away tomorrow, right? If Azure died, Google Cloud lost all its customers and AWS wasn't able to to keep its products moving and people just went back on-prem, none of those companies would die. That's a good point. They're not, they're not committed to these companies. It's that old joke about the chicken and the pig. Which one of us is more committed to producing the farmer's breakfast? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the answer here is none of those companies are actually, will, none of them will die if the cloud dies. Like it's just an accessory, you know, it's just a business unit. One that's taking up a lot of money, but it's because it's making a lot of money. So they're investing a lot of money. Sure, they're all putting in submarine cables, right? Mm-hmm. But those submarine cables are just as effective for their other business units, Microsoft Office, you know, all that other stuff. And now as gaming, it is yes. for, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not built just for Google Cloud or just for AWS. It's built for the whole business structure. So those costs are actually shared. So be careful how you stack your numbers up. So Microsoft's just paid, spent more money potentially on Activision than it spent on the whole of Azure to build it out. And just what think about that, what that means for when next time you say cloud is the future and Microsoft's totally committed to cloud, think about that when you do and think twice about whether that that's a statement that rings true. I mean, I think it is always good to get that perspective on uh, cloud hype because we do go through a lot of cloud hype to understand mm. that Microsoft is multiple things. I do think you know Microsoft is obviously capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time, so they can run different businesses. But it yeah, does. Absolutely, yeah. I, I agree that it does point out that for all the talk of cloud, cloud is only a small fraction of what Microsoft does and, and how it gets its revenue. Yeah. Microsoft's Xbox is way bigger than Azure. So is Microsoft a cloud company? Sure it is. Right. But it's not only a cloud company. You could call it a gaming company with a cloud and, yeah. and business software division attached, yeah. Yeah, and does Microsoft Azure feature as a key part of its gaming strategy? You bet. I'm sure it provides the compute infrastructure and the right. WAN bandwidth and the, right. you know, all those things. Um, hmm. All right, well, we've got links in the show notes if you want to um, uh, find out more. And if you have any insight on this from a gaming perspective, which I'm not that much of one, so I don't know, you can always hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. We'd love to get your take. Uh, moving on, Juniper Network's SD-WAN product can now be fully configured, deployed, and operated from the Mist cloud. This is the same cloud that runs the Mist YLAN APs and Juniper's access switches. So by integrating SD-WAN into the Mist cloud, Juniper's touting a unified branch solution so you can operate APs, switches, and SD-WAN gateways at a branch or remote office from a single console. Sometimes it feels like it wouldn't be a network break if we didn't talk about SD-WAN somewhere, Drew. Of course, we have to. <laughs> Contractually just, obligated. It, yeah, I just I wish everybody would hurry up and start buying it so that it would become normal and we wouldn't have to. Um, but this is this is the natural progression. They bought a company called 128 Technology, uh, which was an SD-WAN. That is an SD-WAN technology that is different to all the other vendors. It doesn't use tunneling. It uses state-based um, uh, and encrypted flows to be able to do the t- to to do the encrypted connections between devices, and that means it's way more efficient in terms of compute resources and also in terms of bandwidth consumption. So it's mm-hmm. much more efficient that way. And of course, Juniper has been hugely successful with its Mist AI 
and applying that AI learning and its models to the networking context. And now they're bringing that to the SD-WAN space, same as we've seen in the campus Wi-Fi space as well. Right. And they're making a big deal of that as well, that you get um, the benefit of their AI and ML technology now applied to the telemetry that's being collected mm. for your WAN operations can all get thrown into Miss Cloud along with everything else. So presumably you would get better visibility into everything that's happening uh, with your campus uh, YLAN and now WAN connectivities for issues like mm. troubleshooting, fault detection, isolation, and um, they even have some automated uh, restore capabilities. Yeah, and I think this this is the signal. So if you if you had to think of something that's going to be ahead for 2022, it's going to be this operational focus. So mm -hmm. part of subscription revenue means that you have to be delivering. I, I'm going to go all corny here, Drew. You have to deliver joy to the customer every month. Ouch. Because if you're billing them a monthly or a yearly subscription license, if you're not giving them something repeatedly, you can't just sell it and walk away from it mm -hmm. and turn up five years later, you know, and say, congratulations, you've paid us five years of, you know, <laughs> uh, that's not going to work. Um, so I do feel that um, this is a natural progression. And Mist AI has proven itself in the wireless space and in the campus space to a to a lesser or greater extent. I certainly don't hear anybody complaining about it. We don't hear people telling us that, you know, Mist, the Juniper Mist product doesn't do what it says on the tin. And the improvement cycle seems to be there's a substantial improvement since Mist joined Juniper. And I think Juniper's thrown a lot of money at it to, to get it, it right as well. That would be the subtext I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, I think we should consider that both Mist and the SD-WAN technology were acquisitions and Juniper has, you know, I think, fairly quickly and fairly effectively folded them into the Juniper portfolio and integrated them pretty well so far. Mm, it does. So now you've got the campus Wi-Fi, campus LAN, and now the SD-WAN. And I would suggest to you that Appstra is a perfect platform for also bringing the Mist AI to it, but there'll be a much, I think that's a much more complicated and much more sophisticated uh, setup. And you probably want to then, you know, I think that takes some more time there. People get a bit sensitive about their data centers. Yes, I did ask about, you know, what won't go under mist uh, when I had an interview with Juniper about this. And they said data center probably wouldn't, uh, at least for the yeah. time being, because they do have that Appstra um, intent-based yeah. networking platform. And it seems like it could potentially be overkill to also try to get it into mist, but we'll see. We'll see. I bet they do. I bet they're saying that. I, I would, I would, I'd, I'd, I'd bet 20 bucks that they do. We could put that on the prediction spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a whole 20 bucks. After and missed get integrated. <laughs> That's it. A whole 20 bucks. Yeah. Event, well, yeah. Question when? I think longer, not soon. Yes. Uh, the, the, the stakes in the data center are high. Uh, there's a lot more sophistication when you have to work in the off-prem cloud with all their proprietary technologies that work in weird ways. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, oh, you know, I can configure you know, Google Cloud in the same way I do an on-prem data center. It's not the same. So I think that's a bit harder. So it makes sense not to presage the fact that you can't do that easily. Yeah. It's also interesting that Juniper has really been effective, I think, at using Mist uh, to get customers to adopt other parts of its portfolio. If you really like the wireless LAN solution with Mist, then, hey, why not add some switches? Hey, why not add SD-WAN now? And it's, I think, been an effective strategy for Juniper, and they'll continue going forward with it. Well, it does lead to the cross-sell, land and expand. Absolutely. Once you've got missed, you can say, oh, look, you're using it for SD-WAN. Why don't you extend it into the Wi-Fi in the campus or whatever? That's a sound. Yep. Sound business strategy. A couple other notes before we wrap on that. Uh, customers who are using the original SD-WAN controller for 128 technology can still continue to use that if they prefer, but you have to choose one or the other. Uh, Juniper is also adding some new security capabilities to the SD-WAN gateways, including IPS, IDS, and a web filtering capability. Uh, but that comes with an additional license fee. For sure. Good to keep like, keeping the backward compatibility though. Yes. It's yes. not like everybody all change, get, you know, sucks to be you. That's right. That's we may see force later down the road. I don't know. That's just a speculation. But for now, uh, if you're also already using the um, original SD-WAN controller, you can continue. Uh, moving on, a chip manufacturer called MediaTek is testing Wi-Fi 7. That's the next upgrade of the Wi-Fi standard. Wi-Fi 7 promises theoretical throughput of 30 gigabits per second, which would be a massive increase over uh, the current Wi-Fi 6 and 6E standards. But we should note that Wi-Fi 7 is not officially ratified yet and products actually haven't started shipping. Yeah, uh, Wi-Fi 7, we've only just, feels like we've only just done Wi-Fi 6, Drew, but I think it's been a couple of years. Yes. Um, should we be expecting Wi-Fi 7? I, I'm unconvinced. We just saw the Wi-Fi 6E standard get published mm -hmm. and the Wi-Fi 7 standard was supposed to go into draft a year ago. And I believe, could be wrong, 
as best I can tell because I can't get into the IEEE secret club information to know anything about its standards. Um, the IEEE has not managed to publish the draft as yet. So in time on a tradition for the IEEE, later is always just better. And so it's interesting to see that a media, that a chip vendor, MediaTek, is testing Wi-Fi 7. So I did some searching around on Wi-Fi 7 to ask myself, why would I care? Uh-huh. And while we published a really good post um, saying basically that it's faster. So the idea is that it brings in uh, more channels and better beam forming and better MIMO to increase. And it sort of um, starts to get into an area where the, the IEEE BE standard, as it's called, is extremely high throughput. So this is the potential amendment that they're pushing out, and it's designed to build on the extra lanes inside of 802.11ax, and it's designed to get um, really, really high speeds up to beyond what we've currently got today. And then there's a second thing. When you go into the IEEE, if you search around for a while, you can get into the data tracker where they actually publish it, and it's part mm-hmm. of a working group inside of the IEEE that's working on time-sensitive networking. So what they're trying to do is reinvent token rank, as best as I can tell. <laughs> so it was a time-sensitive means not necessarily that it's um, low latency, but that it happens at a consistent time. So if you put out an algorithm, you know, if you put out a frame or whatever, that it actually gets to where it needs to be within a guaranteed time. Mm. In this extremely high throughput standard, this proposed 802.11BE, um, appears to be an attempt to increase the bandwidth to such a point that you can actually have predictable latency. And where have you heard that before, Drew? Uh, uh, where have bandwidth I heard that before? Solves, bandwidth solves all problems. Uh, on this one. <laughs> Ride that Sorry. unicorn. Bandwidth solves all problems. If you've got extremely high throughput, you can actually always guarantee the, the timing of things because there's, as long as there's no congestion in the case of Wi-Fi, this is where they're headed. So there is some interesting links here uh, that point to some presentations and there is also a working group in the IEEE. Again, very hard to find the information um, about the time-sensitive networking because it's all hidden behind a paywall um, and you have to be a secret member of their club to get access. But if you, I've got some links here where I've managed to scratch some stuff up. There's a whole working group um, working on what's called deterministic networking or time-sensitive networking, and it's interesting to see what they're doing. Yeah, that's interesting from a technological front, from a uh, rollout front, I'm putting Wi-Fi 7 far over my horizon of things to worry about because I assume folks are still digesting 6 and 6E. Uh, and of course- yeah, it seems a bit, it seems a bit, you know, uh, 100 gig to the desktop type feeling, doesn't it? <laughs> well, uh, I, yeah, I, get, I take that, uh, I take your point in that uh, comparison, although I think there are use cases where more throughput is great, particularly back to gaming again, where folks want to make sure latency is not an issue when they're trying to pull that trigger. Yeah, but it's not going to make any difference um, at the end of the day. Like most people don't have a one gig broadband. So why do you want 80 gig Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now there are definitely niche, don't get me wrong, they're definitely niche use cases, but they're niche. They're not, you know, and, and at this particular point in time, we're finding it very difficult to even get Wi-Fi 6 access points because of a silicon shortage. And the vendors involved are restricting some of the, you know, restricting supply because they can't get them manufactured. And some Wi-Fi vendors are moving from, you know, the vendor of ASIC to another vendor because they can't get supply and so on and so forth. And I really feel like, you know, this is, I'm not sure that, you know, it feels like 100 gig to the desktop. Yeah, of course, we all want 100 gig to desktop, but is it really worthwhile? I guess I feel like this is much more applicable than 100 gig to the desktop, uh, and I can see folks wanting this. But again, we also have to consider, you mentioned supply chain issues. There's also the fact that um, this still needs to be ratified as a standard, mm. and then uh, AP equipment needs to come out, and client uh, equipment needs to catch up as well. So we still have a long way to go with yeah. 7. Yeah, it's got to get into iPhones and you know right. laptops, and, yep. and will they even bother? Why would I bother? I don't know. <laughs> well, you always are happy to encourage people to buy new devices, so that's probably yeah, more bandwidth solves all problems. But equally, that you know, hundred gig Ethernet isn't going to change your life over ten gig Ethernet to the desktop. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to dig into that. Uh, we'll take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE or Secure Access Service Edge. It's SASE Converge 2021. You can now see the on-demand version of the event. You'll hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO Nurzuk, Gartner VP and distinguished analyst Neil McDonald, and the godfather of SDN, Martin Casado. 
um, and find out what they have to say about SASE. You can also see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action, get details on the impact of SASE technologies, and learn about forthcoming innovations. You can get all that at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. It's sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. Just click on that link and register. We also have the link in the show notes. Uh, back to the news, Cisco has announced a new switch in its Catalyst 9000 series. This is the IE9300. It blends IT and OT networking and targets industrial use cases for verticals like power utilities, oil and gas production, and railways. Niche, 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 niche. How can we fill a niche that's so niche that it's niche? This is what rugged, like, well, there used to be companies out there that used to specialize in, in ruggedizing stitches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that's what and they is. were featureless. And, and But now that we're seeing a lot more focus on connectivity and networking, I would imagine that a lot of customers are saying, why isn't my industrial networking also Cisco? I want the brand. We're all Cisco everywhere else, and I want that. So it makes sense for Cisco. Keep in mind that four years ago, Cisco was telling it that their Ethernet switches were going to be used for lighting in buildings. I don't think that went very far. Um, so Cisco does try and fill these niches. And I know there used to be businesses of companies who used to take Cisco switches and then harden them for use in industrial networks. Mm -hmm. They literally used to strip them down and repack them and the maintenance would be blown and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I do wonder how that went, ended up in the end. Well, I think Cisco is very much touting the um, IoT or ITS uh, market here in that you've got uh, industrial or manufacturing equipment that is connected. You want to have good, secure, sound connections um, and some kind of management capability. And so they're positioning the switch as the way to do that. Uh, they're throwing in things like CyberVision uh, in the switch. It's embedded in the switch. CyberVision can do asset inventory of your industrial control systems. It can provide network segmentation mm-hmm. and threat analysis, that kind of thing. So they're definitely pushing that security button along with the just the basic networking element. Yeah. I mean, this is this is going to be very useful for people who have aligned themselves with Cisco for networking and they want to have all their networking consistently so they've got a common operational environment. Yes. Um that's where the value is for those and you know whether these switches got particular features whether they're value for money compared to other industrial switches is hard to tell but i'm sure the people who you know are making those sorts of evaluations will be looking at the features and almost certainly cisco switching in this space is going to be far superior to what exists in industrial networking today all of the security features they've got the uh, the software capabilities and everything so i do think that this is going to be a successful product for cisco to a larger extent it's not you know but uh, can they displace established industrial players whose equipment is already mated to some other product? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, hard to say. I, I will say that, yes, uh, in one of the blogs from Cisco that I read, one of the lines was uh, that along that um, unified operational mm-hmm. model that you wouldn't have to hire another CCIE to run your OT network because it's now Cisco. So you can just use your already trained up existing staff. Yep, that works. There you, you go. Know, if, you like, if you like your, like your, you know, if you're, if you're following a branded strategy and that's your, where you want to go, this is going to work for you for sure. All right, a couple more stories before we wrap. First, Telia Carrier, they provide backbone connectivity services around the world, is rebranding as Aurelion. This is a not overly interesting story, just to mention that Telia Carrier is now known as Aurelion for some reason. Uh, yeah, so Telia Carrier was sold off uh, early last year to a private equity firm. And it is the long haul backbone part and the, uh, sorry, it wasn't a private equity. It's an investment, infrastructure investment fund. Um, I think this is really significant because, um, and as we said at the time, instead of people expecting these backbone infrastructure companies with the long haul cable to produce, you know, 65% profit margins like the technology companies do, gross margins, not net margins. Mm -hmm. This is now saying like, these are like electricity companies or water, they're stable, predictable businesses that invest this amount of capital and they generate consistent returns in the 5 to 10% you know, range to their investors. And my understanding is this has actually been bought by a investment fund specializing in pensions. Right. And so the rebrand of just the carrier part. So Telia continues to exist as a, as a corporate brand providing mm-hmm. services and a range of other things, you know, but the backbone part of the network, which is what Telia Carrier was, is now rebanded as Aurelian. And I suspect that over time, and certainly companies like AT&T and Verizon are fighting this, they believe that they have, they want to be a multi-glomerate company and to have all businesses. So they want to run data centers, they want to run managed services, they want to run retail smartphones, they want to run corporate backbones, they want to do all of it. They want to be that. And I think at the same time, we're seeing different parts of the market fragment and go to much more specialist 
much more focused companies. I think all carriers, all telcos will eventually look like this. There's no reason for these companies to create massive profit margins when they're just commodity products. I mean, I think I disagree that an AT&T or Verizon is going to eventually admit they're just um, a cable. They they want to add services on top and they have, I think, uh, investor pressure to continue to do that. I'm actually kind of glad. I hope that Aurelion or Tilia Carrier is basically just focusing on providing good backbone services and being content with that um, because I think those kind of services are needed and doing it well is a good thing. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I know that they certainly don't want to, but I think that's where they'll end up. <laughs> that's like saying electricity companies in the 18th century, you know, there was all these different small little electricity companies and they were all, you know, this is my area and they would stop anybody else from competing with their, you right, know, right. facility. And eventually it all turned into just one big generation and it was a shared resource for the good of society. I suspect over time for all their whining and complaining, that's where it's going to end up. It's just inherent in the business model. Something that is ubiquitous and widespread does not inherently become a high value add, high touch, high service business. Yeah. Like, how's your water, Drew? Is it a high touch? Do you feel the value add when it comes out of your tap? <laughs> I'm buying water 2.0 so that I can also get fizzy water out of the tap and soda yep. out of the tap. Uh, that's that's what ah, I'm buying. Yeah, well, see? I wonder when we're going to get to water 3.0. When oh, yeah. are we going to get to the NFT water? I mean, it's a pain because I have to upgrade my sink every two years, but I think it's worth it in the long run. Oh, there you go. I think I've made my point. <laughs> I think you're <laughs> All right, our last story for the day on a recent earnings call, the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, that's a massive U.S. investment bank, to close a few tidbits about the bank's IT strategy, including that the bank has spent $2 billion to build new data centers, along with the uh, old data centers are still operating. Um, but most of the data that goes into these data centers has to be cloud eligible. Greg, you you pulled this together. What What caught your eye here? Well, lots of different things. Obviously, JP Morgan talking about their internal strategy. And I think the, uh, this came to me via Twitter and it came to me via multiple uh, emails, that subscri- uh, newsletters that I'm subscribed to. Mm-hmm. And lots of people had lots of different takes on this. But basically, Jamie DeMont, who's the CEO of JP Morgan, is talking about technical debt. He's saying things like, we've spent $12 billion paying down technical debt in our infrastructure and we've just spent $2 billion building brand new data centers. I'll quote, right? He says, so we spent $2 billion on brand new data, okay, which have all the cloud capability you can have in private data centers and stuff like that. We're still running the old data centers. Now we're not going to get involved in it every time you talk. And I'll explain every part of the pain cake of buildup of expenses going in and expenses going out. But all these stuff going into the new data centers, which is completely up and running, the applications have to go in, they have to be cloud eligible. Okay, so... Clearly, he doesn't particularly understand what cloud is or doesn't have a, a fully funk. But then again, when you're the CEO of a bank, the size of a, an investment operation, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But my did my favorite part here is it goes on and it continues to talk. There's a very long talk about the technology. He's obviously been briefed or he's definitely been involved. He says, so he goes on to say, we're running a whole bunch of major programs, which I don't think we've disclosed on AWS. And we're working with Google and Microsoft to run some stuff into cloud. So we want to have a multiple cloud capabilities. And this year, roughly 30, 40, 50% of all of our apps and all our data will be moving to cloud-related type stuff. This stuff is absolutely total value. If you sat in this room and look at the power of cloud and the big data on risk, fraud, marketing capabilities, offers, customer satisfaction, dealing with errors, it's extraordinary. You'll actually see some of that already. So I think that is a real call out. And there was actually a slide in their investor presentation about their technology stack and about their cloud stack. Um, This is not something we normally see CEOs talk about. To me, you very rarely see non-tech CEOs highlighting massive investments in IT, talking about paying down technical debt, talking about taking applications away from the legacy and moving to the cloud. And he even went on to allude to the fact that their mainframes they're planning to, while their mainframes are running and they're not moving them in a hurry, they do believe that they're going to migrate their mainframes into the cloud as well. Mm. So this is significant, I think, just for that alone, Drew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to have him say something like the fact that um, they're seeing actual significant benefits in regard to risk, uh, fraud-related issues, marketing, customer satisfaction, that that kind of those business units have improved because they've been in the cloud and taken advantage of cloud capabilities around analytics and stuff, I think is significant. Mm. Just just unusual to see them talking about it. I wonder, now this has been widely reported across a wide range of financial newspapers and things like that. I do wonder if we're going to start to see 
if this gets enough coverage or gets enough exposure, I'm not sure it will here. This doesn't seem to break through into them. Like it wasn't exact, like they were suddenly talking about data centers in on Fox News or CNBC or something, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but other CEOs will be looking at what JP Morgan's are doing and saying like a $2 billion data center upgrade, like brand new data centers being built and a $12 billion investment over some period of, you know, didn't say when, he just said it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and to actually say to investors, we are literally doing this to ride out technical debt from our infrastructure. And that cost is just, a, and we're going to keep going and we're going to spend money. And Mr. Investment, I don't care that you don't like the fact that I'm spending a lot on it. That's exactly what's going to happen. That feels like a, a moment, a significant moment in the history of executives learning how to spell IT to me. It is. I, I sort of wonder, though, I, we always, again, we talked earlier about cloud hype. I could see folks taking away the fact that, oh, uh, JP Morgan Chase is now all in on cloud. I better be all in on cloud, too, as mm-hmm. and ignoring the fact that they spent $2 billion to build new data centers, and you don't just do that to walk away from them. No, but also on-prem, off-prem. They're right. using all the clouds. They're following a multi-cloud strategy. They're yes. doing what works. Um, I think, and we've said before that the future will not be all in on AWS or all in on Azure. It will be a mix. There will be on-prem and off-prem. Yep. Even just from a purchasing negotiation position, it makes sense to do that. Mm-hmm. And much less if you're you know, doing legacy. And I believe that ultimately most companies will want to have on-prem because they need to manage costs for certain infrastructures. It doesn't make sense to run static predictable workloads that happen week in, week out, out on the cloud and pay premium prices for them. You put those on-prem and maybe you do development or new business in the in the, in the the off-prem cloud and then when it stabilizes, you move it on-prem. That feels to me, and I'm, you know, just, just how I see it, that feels to me like a much more practical strategy for big firms like JP Morgan. Yeah, for sure. And well, it's backed have- up by the numbers. Like on-prem vendors are growing. Hugely. Yes, right. I think that's one of my key takeaways is that don't forget on-prem still plays a significant role in IT strategy uh, as much as mm-hmm. we hear about the cloud and as much as folks are moving to the cloud. I think companies that have gone all in on AWS were probably going broke, as I've said before. Like if you can't afford to run your existing infrastructure and you move to OPEX for everything, you probably haven't got enough money to CapEx and that's why you're there. <laughs> And uh, we'll see what happens. You don't see people running around going, yeah, now we're all in on AWS anymore, right? Right, right. Like you used to, yeah. So we have a link to the uh, call transcript where you can go and see uh, what else uh, Jamie Diamond had to say. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stick around for our Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks on protecting SaaS applications with their next-gen CASB. That's coming right up. Software-as-a-service apps are now essential business tools, but these apps put security teams in a bind. They have to enable access, but also prevent breaches and data loss, often without much visibility into or control over the SaaS application itself. On today's Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, we're going to talk about how a SASE architecture and a next-generation CASB, or Cloud Access Security Broker, can help security teams manage SaaS risks. Our Palo Alto guest is Anupam Apadhyaya. He is VP of Product Management at Palo Alto. Uh, Apad, welcome to the show. And can you tell us, what are you talking about next generation CASB? What does that mean? Before we talk about next generation CASB, right, I, I want to sort of just take a step back and reflect on how 2020 changed how we work and conduct business, right? Hybrid work is becoming the new normal. I start my day at home, go to office for some meetings, and probably end my day at a coffee shop. And what has really kept all of us functioning, and in fact, some would argue, operating at a higher level is the use of SaaS and collaboration apps. We start thinking about apps like Zoom, Microsoft Teams, Slacks. These are becoming now mission critical. But as they are coming in, they're also exposing businesses to new threats, which results in a new set of data security and compliance, right? Which you need to have security across all your channels across all your users, across all your applications. I'm going to pull you up there because in some, in some way, we've always wanted this, right? And before, when we used to have people inside an office, we could channel them in through the, you know, channel the internet gateway or get a choke point on the WAN. And of course, distributed work or hybrid work, you know, where people are, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, is the result of where we are. But the challenge here is, how do, I, how do I get visibility? How do I get traffic into a system where I can log it and inspect it? And 
that, that's something I want to ask you, but I want to know first, you've made one point. What is a next generation CASB, right? We've only just had CASB arrive and you're now telling me we're starting to think about where the next generation is? Yeah, that is right. So let's talk about CASB for a second before yeah. we talk, and let's call it legacy CASB, right? <laughs> uh, if you look at, and you're right. I mean, when we were all in offices accessing apps in our data center, we had choke points. Yeah. Right, in the branch and data center, easy to sort of inspect and look at traffic, right? But with this explosion of hybrid, explosion of people being everywhere, apps being in the cloud, infrastructure as a service, or your data center, right? And as you said, that enhanced visibility to keep pace with newer SaaS and collaboration apps and control becomes key. So, okay, great. We understand the business problem. What does CASP do today? If you look at CASB, most of the CASB, traditional CASB, rely on manual signature-based approaches, discover yeah. new, SaaS, new SaaS applications. So what happens? Now you've got this new app, uh, this approach delays visibility and control for that new SaaS app. Then the second thing is, look at CASB today, it's sort of a bit disjointed from security infrastructure, right? You're sitting in the cloud, which means you require multiple point products or additional components which forces customers to implement this complex traffic redirections leading to inefficiency and complexity. Then the third part, CASP started with cloud environments, right? Yeah. But let's not forget that a lot of your solutions still exist on on-prem. So how do you get that broader coverage for apps, including collaboration apps, along with private applications? And I wanted to say one thing which is important, right? Uh, if you think about all this visibility is good, but let's not forget that control part. A lot of these CASP products lack the ability to prevent that latest threats. And that increases the security workloads, right? So that's what today's CASP is doing. So you're sort of saying that CASB gets you there on the first step there. So the traffic comes into the CASB, the customer forwards the traffic in. We've got these inspection engines, but there's things missing. Like, although you can, like Palo Alto has the app ID and the content ID, and to some extent you can tag, you can say, I know what this content is, or I know what this application is, but you can't get inside it and log it for forensic purposes or for what security, in security parlance, they call data protection. Is that something I can't do today? Is that where we're going? You're right. I mean, if you start looking at some of these things that are coming in, Let's talk about some specific examples, right? Which will make yeah. this real, right? So assume that I am sitting on this beautiful Zoom call. Yes. And I want to share some sensitive data and I flash that up on the video. Right. Or on the chat, I push some things that I should not be. How do you stop that, right? Right. That is what requires that omni-channel strategy, right? The ability for your DLP to detect data inline or even scan it offline to see right. if there were some issues with what you did. So you're and sort of getting into the point that most of us use apps and the apps themselves have end-to-end -end encryption built into them. And so that means data is leaking out through those apps. And it could be even be through people holding a piece of paper up to a screen. That is correct. It could be a screen cap. It could be almost anything. So you're saying there's a, there's a scope there for a tool that actually starts to get into those apps at that level to get that information. Exactly right. And look, into those apps doesn't mean compromising on performance, right? A lot mm. of this could be done offline as well, right? But before we go into that, I want to touch upon what you said. Let's talk about the four components of Next Generation Caspi. One is protecting all users, right? You and I started with this conversation of, well, 2017 or what have you, we all were sitting in our defined places. Security perimeter was the branch, right? Now, as we go become hybrid, we need a solution that protects all users, hybrid, local, or remote. And this is where you require a centralized cloud-delivered uh, solution. So let's talk about this pillar for a second, right? Let's get yeah. a bit technical about this part. So sitting in a branch, okay, sitting at home, sitting in a coffee shop. You could be having a global protect client, which is our, I won't call it a VPN client. It's a, it's a client, right? It does, yes. it does much mm -hmm. more than VPN, right? It's a client yeah. sitting on the well, laptop. It started out as, a, if you can think of it as a VPN client, then you're on the right track. Yeah. But 
conceptually, but it's gone much more of that. Now you start to snap in digital experience management so you can do customer monitoring and you can start to, you know, work out what the user's doing and you can start to see what's on their edge device. Is it a phone? Is it an iPad? Is it a computer? That sort of stuff, right? Yeah, you're you're, you're spot on, right, Greg? Mm. We are actually bringing the next generation security capabilities to the client, right? Yeah. It's not, the VPN is about, okay, I took it to the network, um, it's network security. This is really application user security. But anyway, building on top of that, you've got your, you've got a GP client on your laptop, in the branch, they've got SD-WAN, mm. and all that is sending traffic to Prisma Access, right? Mm-hmm. So now I can see all your apps, I can see all your traffic. And because I am located all across the globe, I have pops which are pretty close to where your users are. So it does not necessarily have an impact on your performance. So that's how I protect all users, right? That's the first strategy. The second thing which is very important is stop known and unknown threats, right? So this is where, because we are available across all control points, right? Your endpoint, your branch, your cloud, your application, right? I can detect and prevent threats. I guess the other side about this too is that this would become incredibly useful for security audits and post-event reviews. So if you have a breach, so many times now we have to have a breach and then we have to be able to do a playback to say how deep did the breach go. You're actually taking steps in the direction of even though I've got a distributed workforce, even though I'm using SaaS tools that I don't own, they're not in my data center, they're rented from somewhere else, I'm actually now able to head in a direction. I don't think you're there, but we're starting to head in this direction. This is sort of like this leadership idea that you're now saying, well, we need to be able to do that wherever the worker is, whatever the app is, whether it's SaaS, whether it's on-prem and start to capture it so that if there's a breach or a leak or some sort of security event, was an employee taking the wrong actions, you can actually start to track that down and forensically know what happened. Greg, uh, that's actually very well put, right? And we'll go back to two things that you said. User ID, app ID, device ID, and let's say content ID. Right, and so that's a fundamental. That's what that's, that's the fundamental. That, right, then Palo Alto started out with the app ID and the user ID, and then you built in the content ID, if I remember rightly, and this idea of fingerprinting the application flows in multiple dimensions. You didn't just sort of say, we ID the application flows. You actually ID them in four dimensions, right? Exactly. And see, we are really leveraging that app ID to look at and using our infrastructure all over the world to detect new applications in a seamless fashion, right? Mm-hmm. And we're and, and as we do that, right? And to your point, right? If I see any compliance issue or breach prevention, right? I can use concepts like app ID, device ID, and user ID to detect the context of that conversation. Where did that breach happen? And trace that back to the user and application where that breach happened. And this is done using a combination of real-time natural language processing-based detection methods built on top of AI and ML technologies. Anupan, I want to dive into something. You had mentioned, I think, DLP. Um, and for our listeners, you may not be familiar, it's data loss prevention or data leak protection, one of those acronyms. But that is essentially looking at the actual content and applying a policy to it, is this something that should be shared outside of the organization? You're saying you are adding this capability to your CASB? We always had support for DLP. If you look at enterprise, our enterprise DLP has been available as a module on Prisma Access for some time. When we say next generation CASB, we are bringing four components together, which can be seamlessly consumed and managed on the same platform. The four components are DLP inline and DLP for APIs, like your applications. Uh, so those two. Third is SaaS inline for your application visibility. And the f- uh, fourth is SaaS API, the ability for you to look at sanctioned apps and go deeper into it to see where the issues might be or where you are seeing data issues. But it's really the combination of all these four things, right? DLP inline mm-hmm. API, SaaS. Uh, inline API. The ability for our customers to consume that as a single offer, manage that as a single offer, is what really uh, forms the next generation CASP element, right? Mm. But having said that, do I, I think to, the, the question becomes, okay, what's different, right? Two things I want to, again, sort of uh, reiterate. One is the ability for us to secure new collaboration apps, like Slack, Teams, Zoom, and in fact, we have the support for 
the industry's largest number of uh, apps that we support. The second that, okay. like I said. That's not just knowing that that's Slack. That's not knowing Slack as destination IP addresses or fingerprinting the traffic to say, oh, that's Slack traffic. That's actually unpacking it and tracking it in some way. Exactly right, right? And okay. it's, it could be uh, unpacking across all channels, right? Video, mm-hmm. using com- technologies like OCR, optical mm-hmm. character recognition, right? Looking at Slack channels, uh, looking at channels, right? So the ability for us to, we have built scale in our system, right? We support today 1,000 plus data identifiers, right? We support things like exact data match, optical character recognition, ML classification, NLP, really provide a scalable platform your point. So you're saying if I am on a Zoom call and in the chat window, maybe I share a link to a PDF that's got sensitive information that I shouldn't be sharing, potentially you could catch that even though it's sort of an application within an application. Actually, we can do one better than that. We can cache that and alert you and allow you to tell us what you can automate actions. You could say, hey, delete this, or you could say unsend it or no, this is fine. It's okay to share this, right? So we provide you that granularity of taking actions also uh, based on what we see as uh, suspicious data. So this is now moving beyond inspecting it, visualizing it, seeing it, flowing it over paths, because obviously all of this in part of this is all part of this is SASE, which is that you know, SD-WAN, use the internet, use the public WAN or private WAN, whatever makes you happy. But now you're actually saying, we're gonna move into the security features because as soon as you're connected to the public WAN, security becomes the big deal. Exactly right. And tying it back to this whole remote or distributed work is that I can do this regardless of where the user is coming in from and without necessarily having to backhaul traffic to some centralized space because of you've got Prisma access, cloud-based pops everywhere. You're exactly right. You, can, uh, you, send, you don't send it to one central choke point. You, can, you send it to the closest pop to where your users are. And you can selectively decrypt traffic of interest and figure out what's happening right. with that traffic. So I don't have to do all of it. If I know maybe I'm not interested in some SaaS app, maybe Salesforce is fine because the tracking mechanisms inside Salesforce meet my security controls. But Slack doesn't, right? So now I can start to say, well, I need to apply security controls to Slack, what gets posted there, what gets shared. So I can just do it for Slack because, A, you can fingerprint the app, you can start tracking the content inside it, and then you can start to unpack it and so forth. That is correct, Greg. The flexibility is important, like you said, right? For in some cases, customers might say, hey, do not touch these apps. We like the end-to-end flow. We can totally take care of that, right? So we can selectively mm-hmm. uh, decrypt or not decrypt uh, application flows, depending on what the end user wants. So Anupam, one more question before we wrap. You know, new SaaS applications are coming out all the time. Uh, how is Palo Alto keeping up? Today, we support more than 15,000 plus SaaS applications. Right? But to your point, we have automated discovery of new SaaS applications using our construct of app ID, crowdsourcing, and machine learning technologies that allows us to easily keep on adding new applications as and when we see them and classifying them. All right, great. So the next time a new app shows up, I can be pretty confident that you guys will be on top of it. That is correct, true. So if I wanted to find out more about this, where should I go? www.paulaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash access. All right, paulaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash access. We'll also have that link in the show notes that accompany this episode. Uh, thank you, Anupam, for joining us. And thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. And thank you for being a listener. If you like this show, you can find it and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking 